The New Theology. This is number three in this series, and it is entitled The Two Gospels. I begin this study by asking a most important question. What is sin? Careful now. Don't be too quick to reply, for I want you to do some very serious thinking. Why? Because your answer will determine which of the two Gospels you believe that are being taught in our church today. The basic difference between these two Gospels can be traced to the definition of sin as found in the Word of God or by the theories developed by men. The popular gospel, as taught by the world in general, has crept into our church in what theology terms as the original sin dogma. This false gospel teaches that sin is a part of your nature, so therefore you are guilty of sin just because you were born into this world. As you explore the false gospel, you discover that it offers you no power of choice, such as the freedom of choosing to sin or not to sin, because the power of sin guilt that is already within you is so great that even when you may try to resist sin in the power of God, you find it impossible. You may think this sounds incredible, but please, don't turn me off, because I'm going to present you the absolute facts. Some of you listening have never dreamed that this false gospel could ever be taught from some of our pulpits. This devilish philosophy teaches that Jesus could not have had the same nature as you and I were born with, for he would have been guilty of sin at his birth. Furthermore, you can never overcome sin in this life until Jesus comes the second time and changes your nature. Also, you can never become perfect because it is impossible to completely follow God's instructions since you were born with the corruption of sin within you. Therefore, if you accept this false gospel, the great sanctuary truth, the investigative judgment, the three angels' message of Revelation 14, all become insignificant. For in this new theology that everything was completed for your salvation at the cross teaches, therefore, that all that God now requires of you to be saved is that you receive justification and a covering of your sins. Sanctification as taught in this erroneous gospel is a slow growth process with no power to overcome sin. In the light of Bible truth and the spirit of prophecy, should you accept this false gospel, you will be eternally lost. This is why I plead with you to listen to the true gospel that will be presented in this tape in which you will discover God is willing to share with all who ask for his divine power, making it possible for you to overcome sin so you can enter heaven where there will be no sin. But before we begin, <clears throat> let us pray and seek for divine wisdom. Loving Father, we know that it is the desire of the Godhead 
that all might be saved. Yet, in your foreknowledge, you have informed us by inspiration that the majority within thy church will accept this false gospel and be lost. So, dear God, we need your help just now to be able to clearly discern truth from error. We plead, share with us thy Holy Spirit that we may clearly understand how Satan has so mingled truth with error that even thy elect have difficulty to comprehend the difference. Help us now as we study the pure gospel to discover the divine assurance of eternal life. This we ask in the name of thy dear Son, Jesus. Amen. To begin, let us turn to God's precious word, for we must have a thus saith the Lord upon which the true gospel is built. First, the Bible gives us a decided answer to the question, what is sin? I'm reading from 1 John 5, verse 4. Sin is the transgression of the law. Ellen White consistently states that this is the definition of sin. Now follow me closely. Therefore, sin is the breaking of God's law, which is the result of an action. For God says sin is the transgression of the law. Since sin is the result of an action rather than a part of our nature, as taught in the false gospel, we begin to understand the harmony that is expressed by all Bible authors regarding sin. Let us first turn to James 4, verse 17, and we read, Therefore, to him that knoweth to do good, and doeth it not, to him it is sin. This scripture states that sin comes by knowledge, which brings the individual a freedom of choice, such as Paul states in Romans 7, 7 to 9. What shall we say then? Is the law sin? Nay, I had not known sin, but by the law. For I had not known lust, except the law had said, Thou shalt not covet. Paul is stating that knowledge has to do with sin. See how plainly he states it. Quote, For without the law sin was dead, for I was alive without the law once. But when the commandment came, sin revived, and I died. The law of God has existed from past eternity, and it will exist unto all eternity to come. Since guilt, which comes from breaking the law, is not accounted to those who ignorantly transgress this law, we must remember that once an individual knows about God's law, he is responsible for what the law contains. Guilt does not come until there is a knowledge of the law. Guilt is never inherited. Likewise, we should remember, with God, willful ignorance is no excuse. This is why Jesus taught that knowledge is the key to such understanding. Listen to the words of the Master as to what sin is. I am reading John 15, 22 and 24. If I had not come and spoken unto them, they had not had sin. But now they have no cloak for their sin. If I had not done among them the works which none other men did, 
They had not had sin, but now have they both seen and hated both me and my father. Ellen White helps us to understand this scripture in a clearer manner. I'm reading Testimonies, Volume 1, page 116. If light come, and that light is set aside or rejected, then comes condemnation and the frown of God. But before light comes, there is no sin, for there is no light for them to reject. To illustrate this further, she tells us in Councils on Health, page 81, where she speaks of a tobacco user who is ignorant of its poisonous effects. She states that such a man is not guilty of sin, but will suffer the consequences of the use of tobacco. And then she adds that as soon as he understands what harm tobacco will do to him, he then becomes guilty of sin in using this poison. In the Bible Commentary 5, page 1145, we are instructed, and I'm quoting, None will be condemned for not heeding light and knowledge that they never had. It is inevitable that children should suffer from the consequences of parental wrongdoing, but they are not punished for the parent's guilt, except as they participate in their sins. For over 100 years, the Seventh-day Adventist Church consistently taught that sin was the result of the action of choice, that before we become guilty of sin, our mind must consent to the temptation. This teaching does not disregard the fact that we all have a sinful nature, but that this sinful nature can be successfully resisted when we come to Jesus and we experience a rebirth as Christians through the mighty recreating power of Christ working in and through us. Now with this clear vision of what constitutes sin, we can understand how Jesus was born with the same flesh and blood that you and I experience daily. Yet, he never once sinned. How come? Because he always made the right choice through the power of the Holy Spirit in fully surrendering to this divine agent. Jesus came to this world as Adam was after his fall, since he was born with the same sinful flesh, but not a sinning flesh, that we have experienced. Because of this, he became our great example that if we follow his pattern of success, we too may overcome through his divine power, which he freely gives to us when we fully surrender to the Holy Spirit. Ellen White made it very clear through her entire ministry as God's mouthpiece that when Christ came to this world to redeem us, he took the place of Adam after his fall, yet without sin. I shall quote numerous sources from the year 1858 to 1892, where she continually stressed that Christ took man's fallen nature. Beginning in 1858, the year the book Spiritual Gifts, Volume 1, page 25, was written. Quote, Jesus also told them that he should take man's fallen nature, and his strength 
would not be even equal with theirs. A few years later, in 1864, Spiritual Gifts, Volume 4, page 115, was written. Quote, It was in the order of God that Christ should take upon himself the form and nature of fallen man. Later on again in 1872, an article in the Review and Herald, 122472, page 118, column 1 of the bound volume, quote, This was the reception the Savior met when he came to a fallen world. He took upon himself man's nature, that he might save the fallen race. Instead of men glorifying God for the honor he had bestowed upon them, in thus sending his Son in the likeness of sinful flesh. Notice those words, in the likeness of sinful flesh. I'll have more to say about that later. Later on in 1874, in another article of the Review and Herald 22474, Page 83, column 2 of the bound volume. Through his humiliation and poverty, Christ would identify with the weaknesses of the fallen race. The great work of redemption could be carried out only by the Redeemer taking the place of fallen Adam. The King of Glory proposed to humble himself to fallen humanity. He would take man's fallen nature. Then again in 1879, Testimonies 5, page 85, column 1. Satan told his angels that when Jesus should take fallen man's nature, he could overpower him. Later on again in 1882, in Testimonies 5, page 746, 747. Christ stooped to take upon himself human nature, that he might reach the fallen race and lift them up. He partook of our human nature, that he might reach humanity. Finally, in 1892, in the Review and Herald, 4192, page 130, column 1 of the bound volume, page 548. Quote, Many may say that Jesus was not like us, that he was not as we are in the world, that he was divine, and that we cannot overcome as he overcame. But Paul writes... Verily he took not on him the nature of angels, but he took on him the seed of Abraham. Wherefore, in all things it behooved him to be made like unto his brethren. Now you will notice from these quotations that over years and years the servant of the Lord was consistent in her writings that Christ took upon himself the nature of Adam after his fall. Now, we come to a most serious indictment. In an article written by J.B. Conley, taken from the Australian Signs of the Times of 5.24.48, page 46, we find that this article reveals that any teaching that insists that Christ came in the nature of Adam before his fall is connected to the Antichrist. That is so important, I must say that again. Any teaching that insists that Christ came in the nature of Adam before his fall is connected to the Antichrist. 
I'm quoting this article. The scriptures have placed the identity of Antichrist beyond either guesswork or confusion. The Bible has clearly named the guilty one. John says that he denies that Jesus Christ is come in the flesh. Second John, verse 7. Let this be the first mark of Antichrist by which his identity will be placed beyond dispute. The verse does not say that Antichrist denies that Jesus is come, but that he denies he has come in the flesh. Far from denying the existence of Christ, the text suggests that Antichrist teaches that Christ has come, but teaches a doctrine about his coming which denies that he has come in the flesh. If the Catholic Church is guilty, as the Protestant reformers claimed her to be, then her teaching concerning the nature of Jesus in his incarnation into this world as a babe will reveal it. Let us examine that teaching in the light of the text before us. The Bible teaches that Jesus was born into the world through Mary, who was a direct descendant of Adam. By inheritance, she partook of Adam's nature. Adam's nature was mortal and subject to death as a result of the transgression of God's will in Eden. His flesh was by nature that of the children of wrath. Mary partook of this nature in all of its aspects. She was a representative of the whole human race and in no way different from others descendant from Adam's line. She was favored among women only because she was the one chosen of God through whom the mystery of godliness was to be made manifest and through whom Jesus was to be brought from heaven where he had been one with the Father in the Godhead to be born into the human family there to partake of all the temptations to which Adam's race is subject. This was possible only as he would partake of the nature of Adam's race. Of this Paul says, For as much then as the children are partakers of flesh and blood, he also himself likewise took part of the same. Therefore in all things it behooved him to be made like unto his brethren. Hebrews 2, 14-17. If further evidence were needed, the same writer supplied it. For in 1 Timothy 3.16 he records, Great is the mystery of godliness. God was manifest in the flesh. Here he says is the mystery of godliness, the ability of Jesus to come from heaven, suffer himself to be manifest in human flesh, and yet to live sinlessly. This latter fact Antichrist was to deny. He was to deny that Jesus came in a divine manifestation which brought him in all phases of his nature to partake of the weaknesses of Adam's race. He would deny that Jesus came in the flesh the same flesh as that of mortal men. On this first count, the denial that Jesus is come in the flesh, the Catholic Church stands convicted of guilt and thus is identified by the marks of Antichrist. Through the teaching of the Immaculate Conception of Mary, that she was preserved 
from all original sin. They, in theory, provide a different flesh from that of the rest of Adam's race to be the avenue through which Jesus was incarnated into the plan of salvation. To state their teaching with authority, it will be best to quote our evidence from Catholic authors. Our first proof will be from the pen of Cardinal Gibbons in his book, Faith of Our Fathers, page 203-204. He says, We define that the Blessed Virgin Mary, in the first moment of her conception, was preserved free from the taint of original sin. Unlike the rest of the children of Adam, the soul of Mary was never subject to sin. Cardinal Gibbons has here clearly stated the teaching of the Roman Catholic Church concerning the sinlessness of the Virgin Mary. It is a teaching not taught in the Bible, but which has been introduced by Catholic teachers who claim to have authority, even above that of the Scriptures, in matters of doctrine. Here I would ask my readers, both Protestant and Catholic, to ponder carefully what this teaching does to the gospel plan. It means that if Mary were born without sin and was preserved from sin for the express purpose of bringing Jesus into the world, then Jesus was born of holy flesh, which was different from that of the rest of Adam's race. This means that he did not identify himself with humanity. It means, too, that Paul was all wrong when he wrote the book of Hebrews, in which he declares that Jesus also himself likewise took part of the same flesh as the rest of Adam's race, and that in all things he was made like unto his brethren, Hebrews 2, 14 and 17. But above all this, if the Catholic teaching is true, then Jesus, not having come within reach of humanity by partaking of man's nature, cannot be the one mediator between God and man. Nor can we come boldly unto the throne of grace that we may obtain mercy and find grace to help in time of need. Hebrews 4.16 All this plays conveniently into the hands of the Catholic plan of salvation. It opens wide the door for the intercession of the Virgin Mary and the respective saints who form part of the papal mediatorial system. And moreover, it places in the hands of the priesthood the power to usurp authority, which God in the scriptures has never delegated to them, that of being controllers of the approaches to the throne of mercy. In the papal claim that Jesus was born of one who had been preserved from every taint of original sin, and who, unlike the rest of the children of Adam, were never subject to sin, we find the first Antichrist indelibly implanted. The papacy certainly teaches that Jesus did not come in the flesh. End of quotation. Now this is a most alarming accusation with profound implications for the new theology that is being preached from some of our pulpits teaches that Christ came as the sinless Adam before his fall. This is a doctrine of the Antichrist, that Christ did not come in the flesh. 
Let us read it again from God's Word. 2 John 7, quote, For many deceivers are entered into the world who confess not that Jesus Christ is come in the flesh. This is a deceiver and an antichrist. Is it any wonder then that the servant of the Lord speaks of the Omega apostasy as being startling in its consequences? For the new so-called theology links all of its believers with the Antichrist. Let me repeat that. The new so-called theology links all of its believers with the Antichrist. It's no wonder that Dr. Ralph Larson in his book, The Word Was Made Flesh, page 330 states, quote, since it is common knowledge that Augustine's doctrine of original sin is now being recommended for addition to the theology of the Seventh-day Adventist Church, it would appear that a careful examination of that doctrine should be undertaken by all who share a concern for the purity of the Adventist faith. Major changes in our theology would be required by the addition of the doctrine of original sin because of the nature of God, the nature of the incarnate Christ, and the nature of man, and the nature of salvation itself are all involved in the Augustinian doctrine. Significant changes could be required in the cherished doctrine of righteousness by faith. The student may easily verify the close relationship between the concepts of the original sin and the doctrine of righteousness by faith by asking advocates of the so-called new theology two questions. Number one, why do you believe that it is impossible for Christians to stop sinning, even through the power of Christ? Question number two, why do you believe the incarnate Christ had to take the nature of the unfallen Adam rather than a nature like ours? And now notice, the same answer will be given to both questions because of the original sin. Since the corruption of the original sin remains in all believers until they die, it is impossible for them to ever stop sinning, even through the power of Christ. And since the inherited guilt of original sin would have disqualified Christ from becoming the Savior of the world, he had to be protected from the original sin by assuming the nature of the unfallen Adam." Unquote. But friend, praise the Lord, we know that God's true gospel has nothing to do with the Antichrist, for Christ was born with Adam's fallen nature. Thus the pure gospel assures us of absolute victory over sin. In reading Selected Messages 1, page 394, abundant grace has been provided that the believing soul may be kept free from sin. For all heaven, with its limited resources, has been placed at our command. Thank you, Lord. Then Ellen White goes on to explain how this can be done. In Signs of the Times, volume 2, page 363, Christ is willing to take procession of the soul temple if we will only let him. 
He is represented as knocking at the door of our hearts for admission. But Jesus never forces himself upon us. He will come in only as an invited guest. In order to let Jesus into our hearts, we must stop sinning. The only definition for sin that we have in the Bible is that it is the transgression of the law. The law is far-reaching in its claims, and we must bring our hearts into harmony with it. Likewise, Peter tells us to follow the example of Christ, 1 Peter 2:21 and 22. For even un- hereunto were ye called, because Christ also suffered for us, leaving us an example that ye should follow his steps, who did no sin, neither was guilt found in his mouth. O what courage the servant of the Lord would have us to possess. Listen to this. Desire of Ages, page 123. Not even by a thought did he yield to temptation, so it may be with us. Isn't that a marvelous promise? Praise God. For we read, quote, Humanity combined with divinity does not commit sin, unquote. Ministry of Healing, page 180. Yes, we can be perfect in Christ. Of course we can. For Matthew 5:48 reads, Be ye perfect, even as your Father, which in is in heaven is perfect. Ellen White quotes this text and then she states, quote, This command is a promise. Desire of Ages, page 311. And let me give you another precious promise found in Acts of the Apostles, page 531. None need fail of attaining in his fear to perfection of Christian character. By the sacrifice of Christ, provision has been made for the believer to receive all things that pertain to life and godliness. God calls upon us to reach the standard of perfection and places before us the example of Christ's character in his humanity, perfected by a life of constant resistance of evil the Savior showed that through cooperation with divinity, human beings may in this life attain to perfection of character. Thus God's assurance to us that we too may obtain complete victory. Praise the Lord. And here's another precious thought. It comes from the Mount of Blessings, Page 142. The victory is not won without much earnest prayer, without the humbling of self at every step. Our will is not to be forced into cooperation with divine agencies, but it must be voluntarily submitted. The will must be placed on the side of God's will. You are not able of yourself to bring your purposes and desires and inclinations into submission to the will of God. But if you are willing to be made willing, God will accomplish the work for you, even casting down imaginations. I like that, don't you? In view of such godly counsel, let me tell you, Do not listen to any church leadership who would guide you into a path that leads to the Antichrist. Keep your eyes and ears open and be on guard. Don't be surprised to find that this false theology is being promoted by men whom you once honored for their faithfulness to God's last day message. The day is already here when we must stand alone in faithfulness 
to the pure gospel in Jesus or follow the crowds to perdition. Now, permit me to briefly summarize the true gospel. Number one, instead of believing the devilish gospel of the original sin, believe in the gospel of free choice. For God took the terrible risk with his entire universe to perfect a freedom of choice. This is why sin was permitted to exist. Forced obedience is worthless. Jesus came to this earth to be killed by Satan and to prove that man can keep the divine law. Man has a right to choose. The gospel of Christ is built upon the foundation of free choice. Number two. The nature of sin is not that which is taught by the gospel of Satan, that man is born with the guilt of sin within him. We believe the gospel of Christ found in the Bible states that sin is the transgression of the law. Not until we have joined our will in active opposition to God's will does sin exist in us. Sin is rebellion against God's law. It is willful disobedience. The true gospel teaches that sin is our willful choice to exercise our fallen nature in opposition to God's will. Number three. Christ took the nature of fallen Adam. Since sin is a choice we make, therefore Christ could inherit our fallen nature without becoming a sinner. He could remain sinless because Christ's choice was always to obey God. Never once did he allow his fallen nature to control his choice. At the time of Christ's birth, Man's condition was not that of sinless Adam, for man had descended to the depths of sin after 4,000 years. Christ could become man's savior only by assuming his fallen condition so that he could bridge the gap between God and fallen man. Thus, he can mediate for us before the Father since he has identified himself with us in our fallen nature. Praise the Lord. What a Savior. Point number four. The gospel of Christ is good news about God's character. For God loves to forgive and restore the sinner. The nature of God's justification given to the sinner because of the mediation of Christ makes it possible for us to stand absolutely righteous in the merits of Christ and restored to God's image. But such justification can only take place when the sinner repents. There can be no repentance without conviction of sin and a sorrow for sin which will include a turning away from sin. When Bible justification takes place, this provides for a sanctification process in which the converted sinner grows daily in the likeness of Christ. Number five. In the gospel of Christ, an individual can be comfortable about Christian perfection for he is willing to let God work within his heart to overcome sin. This is possible when we totally trust God's power to overcome. The gospel of Christ makes it possible for sin to become repulsive so that you will have no desire to disobey God's will. Perfection does not do away with our sinful nature, but perfection is possible by the subjection of our nature in a relationship with Christ. It is possible by surrendering to Christ 
just as Christ surrendered to his Father. Thus, it is possible to have a sinless character with a sinful nature. Such an experience requires agonizing prayer and unquestioned faith in God's promises. I have chosen these thoughts from Dennis Preeby, who has also painted an unforgettable picture of the differences between the two Gospels. First he describes the new theology, which glitters with an easy path to follow. Listen. It's an escape route from the daily battle with Satan. You can sit back and relax to enjoy your newfound ease because there's no more hassle, no more struggle. All you have to do is just believe. For Jesus did it all for you on the cross. He kept the law for you. There's no more do's or don'ts. Feel the excitement of this glorious freedom. For you don't even have to think about your sins. You can sin till Jesus comes. Because he has already forgiven you in advance. Come, celebrate. Express your freedom with rock music. Let the drums beat in celebration of your new discovery. Don't even think of disobedience as necessary anymore. Forget that you ever heard of a sanctuary in heaven where Jesus is conducting an investigative judgment. And don't pay any attention to that little old lady called Ellen White who pleads for you to be sanctified as a fitness for heaven. Ignore all those passages of Scripture that warn you of the narrow road to heaven and few there be that find it. Keep thinking every moment that you are saved in spite of your unconfessed sins. Oh, this is a glorious appeal by the same author that told Eve that she would never die. Satan is the same liar today that he was in the garden. Only now he goes about as a roaring lion, knowing that his time is short. But in closing, I must also point you to the Savior of the real gospel of Christ. I hope you're listening. Look to Jesus as he struggled with human nature, just like you and I do every day. Watch him pray by the hour for the mighty power of God. See him struggle until his sweat turns to great drops of blood. Hear him overcome evil with the words, It is written. Stand in awe as you see him die on the cross, rather than commit one sin. Follow him into the heavenly sanctuary as he stands before God, his Father, and tells how he died for you and your sins and justifies you as though you had never sinned. Watch as he sends the mighty Holy Spirit that you have asked for, that you may be sanctified for heaven. Claim the victory that Jesus now offers as you read in Jude 1.24. Now unto him that is able to keep you from falling and to present you faultless before the presence of his glory with exceeding joy. O oh, beloved, choose you this day whom you will serve, as Joshua said in the book of Joshua 24:15. Choose. Choose the gospel of the new theology developed by Satan, which will end in death, or the everlasting gospel of Christ, which provides you with Christ's victory 
over Satan now and for eternity. Let us pray. Our dear Father in heaven, it is not easy to be pointed out as one who is out of line with the structure, but Father, please give us sufficient grace and courage to stand up and be counted as being faithful to the gospel of Jesus. May we, like our precious Lord, be ready for any sacrifice necessary to be faithful. Amen. I've had many tears and sorrows I've had questions for tomorrow There've been times I felt so all alone But in every situation God gave blessed consolation that my trials come to only make me strong. Through it all, through it all, oh, I've learned to trust in Jesus. I've learned to trust in Oh, I've learned.